turn there with me. If you have a Bible, you can take one from the pew in front of you. Mark chapter 1, beginning at verse 14. Uh, we're looking at the Gospel of Mark over the next few months. And uh, as we've said, it focuses on three questions. Who is Jesus? Why did he come? And what does it mean to follow him? So if you're exploring Christianity, if you're new to Christianity, Mark's Gospel is a great place to start. And if you uh, have been a Christian for years and years, I think it's always good to come back to the core of our faith. Who is Jesus? And what is he about? And what does it mean to follow him? So we're looking today at Mark chapter 1, verses 14 through 20. So let's read these verses together. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew the brother of Simon casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me. And I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. What is Christianity all about at its core? You know, if you ask different people... You might get a wide variety of different answers to that question. Some people think of Christianity as its core as a fire insurance policy that goes into effect when you die. Right? You pray a prayer, you accept Christ as Savior, it's like signing on the dotted line, and then you're guaranteed to avoid hell. Other people, Christianity is a way to help people be moral in this life. Right? That's one reason why uh, many uh, parents start going to church when their kids are young, right? Uh, even if they haven't been going to church previously. Uh, or some parents send their kids to Sunday school even though they don't come to church, right? Now, the idea is church will help people to grow up and become moral and good contributors to society. Now, this, that idea is probably not as widespread as it used to be, but it's still out there. Right? One way or another, Christianity helps people be more moral and good in this life. Or for other people, Christianity is part of being a good citizen. It's sort of like pausing to sing the national anthem before a ball game. Right? Uh, everyone stops for a moment, listens respectfully, looks up at the flag. But nobody goes to a ball game primarily to listen to the national anthem. Right? Why do you go to a ball game? Because of what happens after the national anthem. The ball game is, is the really fun part and the really exciting part, right? Now, for some people, Christianity is sort of one hour on Sunday where you pause and pay your respects to Jesus, and then you go on to what's really fun and exciting in life, right? So there are all kinds of different, these ideas and many other ideas out there about what Christianity is all about at its core. But according to the verses that we just read, they tell us that Christianity, at its core, is about following King Jesus. Now, when Mark introduces us to Jesus, one of the first things he shows us is that Jesus is the promised king. So, uh, verse 1 of chapter 1, he refers to Jesus 
uh, as the Christ or the Messiah. And that word means anointed one. That's uh, a royal title. And then John the Baptist says in verse 3, prepare the way for the Lord, the King. Uh, in verse 7, John the Baptist says, after me, referring to Jesus, comes one who is mightier than I. And then Jesus comes on the scene and the first thing he talks about is the kingdom of God. And he says the kingdom of God is at hand. Right? The kingdom of God that had been long awaited and foretold by the prophets had arrived with him because Jesus is the king who has come to reign. And then in verse 16 through 20, we see Jesus beginning to exercise his kingly authority as he calls people to follow him. So Christianity at its core is about following King Jesus. And in today's passage, we'll see that following King Jesus involves at least three things. First, letting go of other loyalties. Second, beginning right where we are. And third, becoming who God has called us to be. So letting go of other loyalties, beginning right where we are, and becoming who God has called us to be. So let's look at those three things as we look at this sort of key passage where Jesus begins, uh, calls people to follow him. First, letting go of other loyalties. Uh, look at verse 15, what Jesus says. Jesus' first recorded words in the Gospel of Mark. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the Gospel. Now, those two words, repent and believe, are key words throughout the New Testament. And um, to repent literally means to turn around uh, or to change your mind, uh, to turn away from anything that displeases God or anything that conflicts with uh, allegiance to King Jesus. And to believe is sort of the other half of the coin, which means to trust in Jesus himself, to reach out to Jesus and hold on to him and stay with him. So turning and trusting, or repentance and faith, are really two sides of the same coin. So Acts chapter 20, verse 21, the Apostle Paul summarizes his message. He says, I testify both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So, uh, one writer, Sinclair Ferguson, wrote, We can't separate turning from sin in repentance and coming to Christ in faith. They describe the same person in the same action, but from different perspectives. In one instance, repentance, the person is viewed in relation to sin, turning away from sin. In the other, faith, the person is viewed in relation to the Lord Jesus, turning to Jesus. So he goes on to say, uh, Sometimes people are deeply convicted of the guilt and bondage of sin, and they may experience turning from it or repentance as the dominant note in their conversion, uh, uh, turning to Jesus. Others may have a dominant sense of the wonder of Christ's love and of trusting and resting in him. But, he says, if someone truly turns to Jesus, neither repentance nor faith can exist without the other. So, uh, just an example. Imagine we go outside after church and you're about to cross the street to the parking lot and I see a truck barreling down the hill and I yell at you stop stand back from the road okay so you'll either you're going to do one of two things you'll either trust my warning even just a little tiny bit and immediately step back and step out of the road or you'll completely ignore my warning completely distrust it and step out of the road anyway right you'll either turn and trust Repent and believe, or you'll do neither, right? And you don't need a huge amount of faith to 
take a few steps back from the road, right? You might say, I don't know whether he's right, but you know what? I'm, I, I'd rather not take my chances, right? So you don't need, and Jesus talks about faith begins just the size of a mustard seed, just a little bit of trust in Jesus that can lead us to reach out to Jesus and see if, see who he is. And trust one thing that he says, and then trust another thing that he says. And so faith can begin small, uh, but the point is, trusting Jesus, trusting his voice, goes hand in hand with turning to him and turning away from things that are displeasing to him. So when we go on in verses 16 to 20, we see a picture of repenting and believing in the first followers of Jesus. So look at verse 18 and verse 20. In particular, Jesus said to them, follow me, 18, verse 18, and immediately they left their nets and followed him. In verse 20, the same pattern, they left their father's ebony in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. And if you uh, were, were listening as Glenn was reading about the call of Abraham, that's exactly what Abraham did. God called him and he left behind his homeland and sort of his sources of identity and security, and he followed the promises of God. Abraham had to let go of other loyalties in order to embrace the promises of God, and Jesus' disciples had to do the same. So following Jesus involves letting go of other loyalties uh, to follow him. Now, let's step back for a moment from what Jesus is saying, and just notice that Jesus' words here don't make any sense if he was just a regular human being. So, example, if I came up to you while you were at work and said, follow me, I've got something better for you. You might say, but I'm at work. I'm on the clock. I'm responsible to my boss and my coworkers. I, I can't just leave behind my work to follow you. You don't deserve that kind of loyalty. And guess what? You'd be right. That'd be a reasonable response, right? Or if I came up to you while you were at a family gathering and said, follow me, you might say, but I'm hanging out with my family. I'll talk to you later, right? Can we reschedule our meeting to another time? Okay, fine. But Jesus came up to Simon and Andrew, James and John, while they were at work, while they were with their, their dad, and he said, follow me, and immediately they left what they were doing and followed him. You see, Jesus commanded that kind of loyalty that only God deserves. And so we have to ask the question, who is this Jesus really? Uh, one, uh, uh, Hudson Taylor, I think it was, said, either Jesus is Lord of all or he is not Lord at all. In other words, either Jesus is, was, and is the Son of God who is worthy of our worship and our whole lives or he was a mere human being who was dangerously egotistical and should not be trusted. Those are really the two options. Or he was out of his mind and didn't know what he was saying. That's really the third option. Lord, liar, lunatic is what it's sometimes been called. C.S. Lewis said, Christianity, if false, is of no importance, and if true, of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. You see, Jesus didn't come to sell fire insurance that only goes into effect after you die. That's not why he came. 
And he didn't just come to make people a little more moral and good in this life. And he is not, and he, no, he is the one for whom we were created. And he didn't just come to ask us to pause for one hour on Sunday and then go on to the things we're really excited about in the rest of our life. He lays claim to 168 hours every week, not just when we gather here, but wherever we go. You see, Christianity at its core is about following Jesus. And following Jesus means letting go of other loyalties. Now, you might ask, well, wait a minute, what are you saying? Does this mean I have to leave my job, leave my family, sell all my property today? Now, on the surface, that might seem like what Simon and Andrew and James and John did. They got up and followed Jesus, right? And sometimes, I think after careful thought and prayer, following Jesus might lead people to sell property or uh, leave a job or move elsewhere in order to advance God's kingdom. But if we read further along, we see that Jesus' disciples didn't sort of recklessly abandon their other commitments. If you look down even later in the chapter, verse 29, Jesus goes to Simon and Andrew's house. Okay, so Simon still owns a house. He didn't run away and sell his house. Okay, but now what's different? Simon now put his house to use for Jesus and for his kingdom because he invited Jesus to come over and he invited a whole bunch of other people to come over and listen to Jesus while Jesus was at his house. So Simon's house went from my house to a house for Jesus and Jesus' purposes. Uh, verse 30, it mentions Simon's mother-in-law, which means Simon was married. Okay, Simon did not leave his marriage, right, to follow Jesus, but he brought Jesus to meet his extended family, including his mother-in-law, who was sick. Uh, or later on, Jesus' disciples often traveled in a boat, and presumably, it doesn't say who the boat belonged to, but it probably belonged to one of the disciples, right? Jesus' disciples still owned, at least one of them still owned a boat. But guess what? They used the boat to help transport Jesus and his disciples back and forth across the lake. So here's the point. When, when we say that following Jesus means letting go of other loyalties, it doesn't mean recklessly abandoning our other commitments, but it means reorganizing our other commitments around the number one priority of following King Jesus. So the question that we need to ask ourselves is, is following Jesus my number one priority? And if so, are there other commitments or loyalties in my life that need to be reorganized around that as a result? So that's the first thing following Jesus means, letting go of other loyalties and reorganizing our lives around the central priority of following him. But the second thing we see about following Jesus is it means beginning right where we are. Uh, now some people have wondered, how did Simon, Andrew, James, and John, how did they even know who Jesus was? You know, they appear, I mean, this all appears pretty suddenly if you're just reading the Gospel of Mark. And you might wonder, was this the first time they had ever met him? Uh, were they just acting on a whim, spontaneously, sort of like hippies in the 60s? Hey, let's go to Woodstock. Is that what was going on? That's the point of this passage, that we should just act spontaneously on a whim and go wherever it leads us? No. That would be a bad understanding and a bad application of this passage. 
right? Just because Mark introduces the disciples in this way doesn't mean that they had no prior interactions with Jesus and no prior knowledge of him. In fact, if you read the Gospel of John, John tells us uh, that Simon and Andrew had some significant interactions with Jesus that happened before this call to follow him. So they had heard Jesus, perhaps they had heard him teaching or preaching um, his message as he was in verses 14 and 15. Uh, they had had some, at least some of them, had had some personal conversations with him. So they knew something about who he was, but this was sort of a decisive moment where Jesus called them to become his followers. And notice where this decisive moment happened. It didn't happen in a religious space. So it didn't happen when, when they just at the temple or even in a synagogue. It happened at their place of work. So I want you to imagine Jesus showing up at your place of work or the place where you, if you're retired, think of a place you worked in the past. Right? Imagine if Jesus showed up at the insurance company office or uh, the dentist office or ESPN or the post office or the hospital or school or your home, if you're working from home or at home, and said, follow me. Right? Jesus didn't, so here's the point. Jesus didn't wait for his disciples to come to a sort of designated spiritual space to meet him. He came and met them where they were in their ordinary lives. And these were regular guys who worked with their hands. So Simon and Andrew were casting a net into the sea. James and John were mending the nets, probably preparing for another night of fishing. And these guys were blue-collar small business owners of the ancient world. Their clothes might have been wet from wading in the water and casting the net in. Their hands might have been stinky from handling raw fish. They might have been sweaty from work if, if it was a hot day and they were working in the sun. And that's where and Jesus met them. In their regular, ordinary lives, right where they were. Now, these guys weren't the poorest of the poor, but they also weren't the richest of the rich. They, were, they might have had some education, but they weren't the most well-educated. Uh, but these are the guys Jesus started with. And as we go through the Gospels, we see how Jesus meets all kinds of people. Some people are the poorest of the poor, absolutely desperate. Some are wealthy and well-connected. And so as we go through Mark, we'll see how all kinds of different people get attracted to Jesus. But Jesus begins by meeting these ordinary guys at their place of work and calling them to follow him, beginning right where they were. And this was unusual because it's not how most religious teachers operated in the ancient world. It's not how other rabbis gathered their students. Most rabbis expected their students to approach them and initiate with them. It's sort of like applying to college today. Okay? Now, colleges might recruit you, if, especially if you're an athlete or something like that. But for the most part, you have to fill out that application. Even if they recruit you, they say, you've got to fill out the application, you've got to get your recommendations, you've got to submit your transcript, you've got to do X, Y, Z, and then see if the admissions office accepts you. Right? Jesus didn't take that approach. Right? He doesn't come to them and say, I have a standardized test for you to take. How many verses in the Bible can you quote from memory? 
right? Name all the books of the Bible in order. Can you do it? If so, then maybe you would be a good material for a disciple. No. No qualifying exam, right? No sort of prove yourself in one way or another. It's, I'm here, follow me, and start right where you are. So here's the thing. We see two things about Jesus when Jesus calls people to begin right where they are. On the one hand, he's extraordinarily gracious. Right? Isn't it amazing? Jesus comes to meet us right where we are. He doesn't wait for us to clean ourselves up or come find him somewhere else or go through some rigmarole. He meets us right where we are. That shows his ex how extraordinarily gracious he is. And he doesn't ask us to prove ourselves to him or prove that we're worthy of being his disciples. He calls us just start right where you are. And that's pretty amazing. Jesus is extraordinarily gracious, extraordinarily gracious. On the other hand, he's also extraordinarily rigorous. Right? Because he's not satisfied with half-hearted devotion. He doesn't say, follow me when you have some extra time. Follow me when you feel inclined to. Follow me when you're having a good day. No, he says, reorient your, your whole life around following me. I am the promised king. <clears throat> so, following Jesus means letting go of other loyalties and reorganizing our lives around him. It means beginning right where we are. And third, it means becoming who God has called us to be. Verse 17, what does he say? Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. You see, what does Jesus call us to? He calls us into a lifelong journey of becoming the people that he has made us to be in relationship with him and with other disciples. Now, Jesus used a metaphor here that would have made sense to these fishermen because he says, I'll make you fishers of men, fishers of people, fishers of souls. Now, think about some of the qualities that fishermen naturally develop over time. Uh, one of them would be diligence, right? In order to be successful at fishing, you need to work hard. And fishing uh, sometimes involves being out on the water all night, late or late at night, or very, very early in the morning, in the cold, in the heat, in the rain, in the storms. You won't last long as a fisherman if you are lazy, right? So fishing sort of teaches you Diligence. Fishing also uh, teaches patience because there's a lot of repetition in fishing, right? You do the same thing over and over, and sometimes you do the same thing for hours and hours with no visible results, right? But fishing uh, naturally teaches patience. Fishing also will teach skill, right? Because over time, a good fisherman learns his craft, he knows where the fish are, what times of the day they bite, and what kind of bait will most likely attract them, right? So fishing, as fishermen, these guys had developed over time diligence, patience, and skill. And Jesus called them to employ those same skills 
toward the greater mission into which he had called them. His purpose for them was for them to grow in diligence, patience, and skill in bringing people from the dark and chaotic waters of this world into the light and peace of the kingdom of God. One pastor said before, these men had brought fish from life to death. Now they will bring people from death to life. And that is part of God's purpose for every follower of Jesus to become a fisher of souls, a fisher of people. Uh, Proverbs 11.30 says, The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and the one who is wise wins souls. Uh, or, uh, seeks to win people to Jesus. Daniel 12, verse 3 says, Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. And in the New Testament, Paul says in Philippians 2.15, Shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. Now, some Christians might be particularly gifted at gathering people and bringing them to Jesus. Uh, but, you know, you don't have to be a gifted public speaker or a charismatic personality or a naturally outgoing person in order to lead others to Jesus. You can welcome people into your home and show the love of God through hospitality. You can show the love of Christ through serving people and noticing people who everyone else overlooks, through cooking meals for people, uh, through listening, right? You can, you can do this from your own home. You can call somebody up on the phone and be a good listener, right, to someone who might need a listening ear, maybe who's going through a lot. And by patience, again, like a fisherman is sort of patiently doing his thing or her thing, Right? Christians can patiently listen and love and show the love of Christ to people. Um, and so just like a fisherman naturally grows in diligence and patience and skill in fishing for fish, Jesus wants his disciples to grow in diligence, patience, and skill in fishing for people and seeking to gather people in toward Jesus. So Jesus says, begin where you are so that you can become who I want you to be. One uh, long time ago, uh, John Wesley wrote this. He says, Christ has many services to be done. Some are easy, others are difficult. Some bring honor, others bring reproach. Some are suitable to our natural inclinations and, and worldly interests. Others are contrary to both. In some we may please Christ and please ourselves. In others we cannot please Christ except by denying ourselves. Yet the power to do all these things is assuredly given us in Christ who strengthens us. And you know part of the way that Jesus strengthens us to follow his call is in fellowship with other believers. Do you notice that Jesus called these men as a group? Right? He didn't just arrange a bunch of private, one-on-one -on -one conversations. So Jesus was not like an individual therapist, right, who has private, confidential meetings that are completely separate from one another, right? You might have two different people who are seeing the same therapist and don't even know each other or know each other but don't know any of the problems that they're dealing with, right? There's, it's, it's, that's individual, separate care. But Jesus acted much more like the coach of a team or the leader of a group or the head of a family, by calling us, or the leader of a class, right? Jesus called his disciples to follow him 
and to become who he had called them to be in fellowship with one another. Um, James Edwards is, uh, wrote a great commentary on Mark, and he wrote this. The essential work of Jesus consists in forming a fellowship. And only within fellowship is the call of Jesus heard and obeyed. The community that Jesus formed is not a nameless and faceless mass, but a community of individuals whose names are known. So are you following Jesus in fellowship with other disciples of Jesus? That's why we gather on Sundays. And, and this is sort of a starting place, right, for us as we uh, come here on Sundays, as we're reminded about who we are, as we're renewed in our faith and love of Jesus. And it's a starting place for us to build relationships with one another, to, love, to welcome somebody who's new, uh, who you don't or who you don't know yet, and, and, and grow in sharing life together as followers of Jesus. It makes a difference to be in fellowship with other believers as you're following Jesus, because that's how we learn to follow the Lord. So at its core, Christianity is about following King Jesus, letting go of other loyalties, beginning right where you are, and by God's grace, becoming all that he's made you to be. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for how amazingly gracious you are that you come and meet us where, you are, where we are. And Lord, we thank you uh, that you also don't just let us stay the way we are. Lord, you're, you're gracious and, and loving enough to not just uh, let us continue uh, in the way we would be apart from you. Uh, but we pray that you would help us uh, to truly reckon with you as our king and truly follow you as our number one priority and become the people you've, come, you've called us to be over time by your grace. We ask this in your holy name. Amen.